Welcome back to the Santiago Boys. I'm Evgeny Marozov, and I'll be your host. In the last episode, we met Salvador Allende. He's just got elected president on this big utopian program. And funnily enough, he's even trying to implement it. His plans horrify the CIA. ITT, the tech giant, is not thrilled about them either. And they worry for a good reason. Allende, as we found out, is a bit of a dreamer. A guy who wants to give milk to all the Chilean kids. But it's not his milk utopia that Allende's enemies find so threatening. Rather, it's his proposed reforms. He wants to restore Chile's technological sovereignty. He wants to defend its economic independence. And that's something that his enemies will not tolerate at any cost. But it's not all gloom for Allende. He's surrounded by all these radical engineers, the Santiago boys, who have a strange itch. They love technology, and they want to use it to help Allende. They do a bit on the dreamy side. But as things get out of control, they seek help from this British consultant named Stafford Beer. He is quite a character. He's rich, he's got connections, he knows everything. Management, computers, even cybernetics, whatever that is. So it's shaping up to be quite a battle with spies, terrorists, leftist guerrillas, and so much more. And you'll hear all about it in just a second. Let's go. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify. The global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. It's September 1971, a year after I end this historic victory. We're in Viña del Mar, a gorgeous beach town not far from Santiago. It's the right place to take a boat trip and enjoy the ocean, but these guys, some of Chile's most powerful people, are not here to relax. They're here to plot, to plot against their president, Salvador Allende. And these rich industrialists, the owners of Chile's factories and mines and banks, hate him. They know they need to topple him, but they need help. Now, they already have some friends lending a hand. Friends who also hate Allende. Friends who have studied with Milton Friedman, the free market guru, and who now want to bring his ideas to Chile. These friends are called the Chicago Boys. And their vision for Chile's economy is very different from Allende's. But even more help is needed. And so these industrialists form an intelligence unit a unit that will search for ways to damage Allende, a unit led by a former military man, a colonel, no less. This colonel and his men share their intel with a dangerous right-wing group. They call themselves Patria y Libertad, Fatherland and Freedom. They got a lot of money from the CIA after the election, and they're using it now to make Allende's life miserable. Truly miserable. So miserable, in fact, that even the U.S. ambassador worries about them. In a memo he sends to his superiors in Washington, he paints a rather disturbing portrait of this new movement. Publicly merely anti-Marxist and dedicated to mobilizing opinion in defense of Chilean democratic values, Patria y Libertad, in fact, seeks to enhance its capabilities as a paramilitary shock force and, ultimately, to provoke a sympathetic military intervention. The ambassador doesn't like their look either. PL chose as its symbol a black spider-like device, which brings the swastika to mind. Easily stenciled, this rather sinister insignia adorns countless walls in Santiago's middle and upper-class residential sections, Patria y Libertad's home ground. The rhetoric of this new movement might seem mild and even vaguely anti-authoritarian, but in reality, the agenda is anything but. The symbol is often accompanied by such catchwords as integration, authority, and functional democracy. So, as his enemies multiply and even join forces, how can Allende possibly survive? And what could a clueless upper-class foreigner, this Stafford Beer character, possibly contribute? 
But when nobody expects it, Allende goes on the offensive and does something huge. He takes over ITT subsidiary in Chile and locks up its bosses. Now, this makes ITT very angry. And remember, they have powerful friends. Friends in Washington. Friends like John McCone, who used to run the CIA itself and is now on ITT's board. And of course, they are ready to fight back. Hard, with all their might. Fight until they crush this dreamer. Stafford Beer knows none of this. At least he doesn't show it. He arrives in Chile with a big idea, but an even bigger appetite. Wine, pisco sours, empanadas, Stafford Beer wants it all. And at first, it's all going great. He mingles with Allende's inner circle, he frequents local bars and restaurants, he gets to know what is really happening in this country. And his host, Fernando Flores, is happy to help. Gabriel Rodriguez remembers the incredible dynamic between the two. It was completely different from how a government bureaucrat would treat a foreign consultant. Fernando was absolutely sure about the value of what Stafford was working on. Stafford also tutors these young engineers about the basics. You know, how to run their government like a British steel factory. How to make decisions based on data. How to get their cybernetic ducks in a row, so to say. That kind of thing. But it seems he's not at all sure they are buying it. But he was in vain, as Rulis Pejo recalls. He felt that he had to convince us and that uh, we were going to be tough cookies. <laughs> we were all with our mouth like that, you know, and just trying to get as much as possible from him. You might think that lectures on management cybernetics would be, hmm, what's the word, boring? But not for these guys. Stafford impresses them with his big radical idea. He says that we can prevent big problems by spotting trouble early on. He talks about detecting incipient instability. Incipient is consultant speak for emerging, I guess. And he says this could change everything, absolutely everything. If you know in real time that some aspect of your affairs is incipiently unstable, you can go and stop it. So while Allende's enemies do their best to cause instability, Stafford is desperately trying to keep things stable. His brief is to keep the situation under control. These young engineers also love Stafford's vision of the computer as the liberty machine. That's what he calls it, the liberty machine. And in fact, they're hanging on his every word as he explains it. It all sounds wonderful, but can Stafford really live up to the challenge? Can he truly detect instability before it's too late? And can he prevent Chile from descending into chaos? All of that remains to be seen. For now, one thing is clear. In Chile, Stafford finds himself in a very strange new world. It's not exactly the life of luxury he's been living in the UK. The Chileans put him in the Sheraton Hotel, a place that's hard not to enjoy. And for a while, Stafford does enjoy it. Blissfully unaware, it belongs to ITT, the company plotting against his new bosses. Not exactly the kind of place where you'd want to leave your room unlocked and your documents unprotected. Still, the winds of change are blowing strong in Santiago, and Stafford cannot not notice it. The old way of doing things, all those rigid hierarchies and class divisions, all of that is being overturned. And for Chile, this moment offers a thrilling chance. A chance to reimagine how workers could relate to their bosses. A chance to empower those who really know best. And a chance to show that socialism, too, can innovate. Here's John Garces, Allende's top political advisor, explaining to us the blueprint behind this radical change. Cada empresa tiene un comité de empresa que es elegido por los propios trabajadores. As John points out, each state firm was supposed to be governed by a council. A council of 10 representatives. Five of them come from the government and five from the workers. The government does pick the ultimate boss, but the workers also form committees. And it's these committees that decide on almost everything. And the setup works amazingly well. The workers' productivity improves and everything runs so smoother now. Now that they're motivated, the workers are also inventing new ways to cut costs, boost quality, and even develop new products. 
They are part of a grand experiment to take socialism to a completely new level. And, luckily, now they do have a hidden ally. Yes, our own Stafford Beer. He wants to make the factory smarter. But that's not all. He also wants to connect them to, wait for it, computers. What? Well, yes, these computers will help workers manage the factories. That is, to become managers. They will not just be monitored and treated like cogs in the machine, like in the old days. No, no, no. It will be completely new and different in this new Chile of Allende. So, dreaming big in his Sheraton room, Stafford is inventing a cybernetic system for socialism. A socialism unlike that of the Soviet Union. A different socialism. One that respects computers. And the workers, too. And just like that, Project CyberScene, short for Cybernetic Synergy, CyberScene, is born. All of it courtesy of Stafford Beer, of course. This name takes a while to emerge. But the underlying ideas are already there during his first visit, as some of the founding documents show. Objective. To install a preliminary system of information and regulation for the industrial economy that will demonstrate the main features of cybernetic management and begin to help in the task of actual decision-making by the 1st of March, 1972. By the way, a minor digression here. There is a great academic book about the history of Project CyberSyn that I highly recommend. It's a book by Eden Medina, and it's called The Cybernetic Revolutionaries. The reference to this book, along with hundreds of other sources, including articles, documents, taluxes, and even some videos, appears on our podcast website. Do check it out. And now back to our story. So the Santiago boys are buzzing with excitement as Stafford unveils his big plan. For them, as Rudy Espejo points out, this is a chance to break out of the daily grind and become part of something truly exciting and revolutionary. For us, it was a fantastic opportunity to get involved in something that was new, that was very uh, impressive, and that uh, we, it would take us out of the routine, traditional, work that uh, you would expect to have in these institutions. The Santiago boys are living a dream. A dream where technology can transform reality rather than just help adapt to it. And what's more, they're doing it in a place where absolutely no one expected anything of the kind. The stodgy offices of Corfo, that bureaucratic monster. But to think it all began in a Sheraton suite? Well, maybe we've all been booking the wrong hotels, guys. The Santiago boys are in for a surprise. Turns out that Stafford's vision is even more expensive than they ever thought possible. The idea was just this. If we could find points in the economy at which to measure things, those measures would be sent every day, continuously, to computers which could analyze them, produce answers. One can easily get lost in this ambitious vision, but one has to wonder, does Stafford truly understand Chile? Does he have a clue about the realities on the ground? Only two computers for CyberSyn to work with, and no guarantees of acquiring more. And to make matters worse, Washington's meddling makes it nearly impossible to acquire spare parts and much-needed equipment. Equipment of any kind. Imagine Chile can't even keep its copper mining machines running. How will they ever manage to maintain those clunky mainframes? But when there is a will, there is a way. As luck would have it, the Santiago boys find a hidden stash of dusty Talix machines in an old post office. And now, with a little ingenuity, they can try to build a network to change Chile, if not the world. The internet before the internet, if you will. What we did was t- we took over the Telex circuit and we ran the most advanced socioeconomic con- control system the world has ever seen on about the most antiquated c- equipment you've ever seen. <laughs> We knew that any socialist revolution might start in the post office, but not quite in this way. As Project Cybersyn gets underway, tensions between Washington and Santiago reach new heights. Now Nixon is even more furious with Allende. How dare he claim that America owes Chile money? And how dare he do that after Allende himself has nationalized the country's copper industry, which was previously owned by American firms? 
that's some creative socialist accounting right there. Nixon is simmering with anger. He even orders Henry Kissinger, and I'm quoting here, right from the royal lips, to knock their brains out, to kick Chile in the ass, and my personal favorite, to really blast their butt. He's one hell of a gentleman, this Nixon. Why is he so upset? For one, Nixon believes that Latin Americans are not yet mature enough, not for democracy anyway. He worries that giving everyone there the right to vote would simply open the door to communism. Just look at Chile with Allende. They elected this guy in the democratic election. The strange attitude to the region started a long time ago, possibly in the late 1950s. Disastrous trip to Latin America only confirmed many of Nixon's biases. As one witty observer put it, it was a diplomatic Pearl Harbor, and Nixon was not the one waging the attack. Richard Nixon visited a number of countries in Latin America in 1958 and was surprised to find that he was not very welcome. This is historian Stuart Shader from John Hopkins University. On this tour, Nixon hopes to meet the common people, and much to his horror, meet them he does. Protests greet Nixon almost everywhere he goes. In Lima, in Peru, in Nixon's own words, a weird-looking character, one of the most notorious communist agitators in Lima, spit in his face. And Nixon kicked this guy in the shins. In Venezuela, where he goes next, everything goes wrong from the get-go. As Nixon and his wife disembark the plane, they are hit by a strange brownish rain. Turns out to be spit from tobacco-chewing protesters standing on the observation deck above. Then, as the Nixons drive into town, angry mobs attack their car with pipes and sticks. The situation is so intense, they almost overturn it. And here comes the train again, as the windshield gets covered in drool from all the spitting around them, the poor driver has to turn on the vipers. Nixon surely sees this as proof of the unfolding communist apocalypse. But for those around him, it's just a way to show their frustration. Frustration with U.S. policies in Latin America. You know what they say. Don't spit on a foreign policy, spit on the guy who makes it. And Nixon is the only guy they've got. But Allende won't follow this riotous crowd. As the conflict between Chile and the U.S. intensifies, he's even attempting to reason with Nixon. He crafts him a most polite letter, full of ideas and arguments, not threats of brain-busting and ass-kicking. The harsh reality of our country, the hunger, the poverty, and the almost complete hopelessness, has convinced our people that we are in need of profound changes. We have chosen to carry these changes out by means of democracy, pluralism, and freedom, with friendship toward all peoples of the world. History plays out in mysterious ways. And the Cold War history especially so. The irony here is that Allende kind of admires America. He loves the poetry of Walt Whitman and has a fondness for Western movies. And politically, he even looks up to Franco Delano Roosevelt. Of course, Allende is hardly alone here. Just look at the young Fidel Castro, who was a 14-year-old even sends FDR an admiring telegram. But Cold War has other plans for Chile and for Latin America. It dooms Allende to be Nixon's enemy. Sadly, no polite letters could ever fix this. As Nixon and Allende battle it out, a group of socialist nerds can't wait to get into action. Their home? A most curious, almost magical place called Intac. That's where CyberSyn gets its operational base. In English, its name would be something like the Institute of Technology Research. It's a government agency that works on solving technical problems for Corfo state enterprises. But it's also a place where young and creative minds can run wild. And when Allende comes to power, they get a new challenge. How to make technology more socialist. This is where Gibbon Siep comes in. He's a German designer who studied at the famous Ulm School of Design. Recruited by Fernando Flores, Guy joins the Catholic University and then moves to Intac. So while he may be born in Germany, it doesn't take him all that long to re-emerge as a Santiago boy. Now he just needs to figure out how to sprinkle some socialist pixie dust on everyday objects. This might seem like an easy task, but as Gisun discovers, the road to socialist tractors and sofas is paved with unexpected challenges. 
The good thing is that he already knows all about Stafford Beer. He stumbled upon his work back in Germany, even before Fernando. In 59 or 60, when I had finished my studies, a colleague of mine became employed as a lecturer and reader in the Fischer Verlag in Frankfurt. And the Fischer Verlag came up with, with a request to translate one of the first books from Sefer Design Management. Guy accepts the challenge, but it proves too daunting. His English is just not good enough at the time. But he loves the book and Stafford series. He was had a very, very strong influence of my way of approaching reality and of, of teaching design and designing, you see. But there is only that much that a provincial German town can offer a young intellectual. Guy is longing for something wilder, something in Latin America, perhaps. A buttoned-up intellectual who is shedding his tweed jacket for a sombrero? Well, it's not an everyday occurrence. But Guy Bonsiep is up for the challenge. Ulm School may have taught him a thing or two about ideas, but Latin America teaches him about everything else. Coming to a cosmopolitan, open, uh, inv- uh, vital uh, <laughs> um, city like Buenos Aires was like a shock. That you go to, go to cinema 24 hours a day, this was unusual for me, even unimaginable, but that was possible. A casual trip to Buenos Aires turns into something bigger. Eventually, Guy moves to Santiago, feeling at home in a region ripe for revolution. In Latin America, you could dream and t- uh, of a utopia. utopia. Hmm? This was possible. In Europe, I could not dream of a utopia. Everything settled already, everything done. His immersion in Latin American politics also makes Guy critical of how designers think about their profession and its responsibilities. Most of them believe that their job is to make objects prettier to keep tweeting the design of the same car with every new model. But is it all that there is to it? Are they forever to remain these handmaidens of corporations? Perhaps they had the prejudice that they say designers are you know, not troublemakers or confusionists, but they are co- cosmeticians, you see. They make nice products. But what about politics, ecology, economics? Shouldn't they too somehow appear on the designer's radar? This was a very easy and misguided conception what design is about, but anyway, it existed there. Step by step, we could change this opinion or prejudice. By that time, he has become a true Santiago boy. Like those students occupying the Catholic University, Guy believes that expertise comes with social obligations. Thus, while other Ulm graduates go to work for the likes of Brown or Levetti, the big design brands, Guy visits Havana He wants to learn about Che Guevara's influence on Cuban textiles. And at least I, when I was in Chile, felt more at home being involved in projects which were coming from a social context and conditioned by a social context than from mainly marketing and um, private company interests, you see. In this grand vision, the designer's job is not just to make pretty chairs. It's also to build a world where everybody has a seat at the table. No wonder that Guy had to come all the way to Latin America in search of this utopia. But translating Allende's socialist promises into actual technological reality proves no easy fit, especially when the expectations run so high. One of the most iconic, uh, basic consumer goods uh, to be associated with the popular unity revolution uh, was powdered milk. This is Joshua Franz Strink, the historian of Chile at the University of Texas. Nutrition scientists had identified uh, Chileans' uh, failure to consume uh, enough milk as a sort of key reason for the country's very high infant mortality rates and generally for poor public health outcomes. Allende's government sought to provide schools with packets of powered milk that would then need to be mixed with water. But the correct dosing proves difficult. And in a country where every penny counts, these costs add up. Fortunately, Guy and his design team stand ready to help. There was a, uh, needed a spoon, a device, 
to measure 5 grams and 20 grams of milk powder. After a lot of prototyping, they arrive at an elegant solution. So finally, we got back to the basics to make an open half um, uh, sphere in which you simply stroke with a knife the excess of powder and you get what you need, you see. These are the unsung heroes of Ayanda's revolution. They're quietly improving the lives of ordinary Chileans, one weird gadget at a time. Take, for instance, the impracticality of using wooden crates to store and transport fish, a big problem in a country of fishermen. This team developed a solution that is simple yet efficient, plastic crates that are water-resistant and easy to stack. Or take the furniture they design. It's furniture for the poor, furniture that will fit into the tiny, low-cost houses. The Chicago boys may be great admirers of the market, but this invisible hand has never bothered to provide it. So it's the visible hand of the Santiago boys that actually has to build it from scratch. They are thrilled to be working on Allende's techno-utopia. All they need is time. While he and his team are building techno-socialism, Stafford Beer is living at the top by his poolside room at the Sheraton Hotel. And who can blame him? The lobsters there are delicious, especially when you know that they're being subsidized by ITT. Yes, socialist accounting strikes again. Like other establishments, the Sheraton has to accept the so-called popular prices mandated by the government. Stafford cuts such an imposing figure that the locals even mistake him for celebrity, as Fernando Flores recalls. We were in this hotel in Santiago, uh, having lunch one day, and a woman arrived, older woman in English, said, Oh, so beautiful, you look like Orson Welles. Rulia Espejo only needs to follow his nose to find Stafford's hotel room. The scent of his present is unmistakable. I soon realized that I didn't need to ask for the number of his room because I had clear that, that uh, the smell of cigars would take me to his room without any hesitation or doubt. So the, the number of cigars he smoked was unbelievable. And he was also drinking, like if he had never drunk in his life. The Santiago boys had Stafford packed as a bit of a bore. They pictured him as a stiff, formal type. But soon they discovered the real Stafford. Warm, friendly, open-minded. Gibbon Siap is struck by his laid-back attitude. I think, see, Stafford Beer was always moving more or less like a He was very informal. I never saw him with a tie. Never. I never saw him with a jacket, formal jacket. Stafford has come a long way from his corporate days in London, and it shows. Even the Chileans are doing a double take when they see him. This is what Gabriel Rodriguez remembers. It's definitely not how you imagine a prominent business consultant, a professor of management. Stafford Beer may look like a flower child, but when it comes to work, he is all business. Gibbon Siap is most impressed. I saw him permanently working permanently in, in his office room there, writing and, and, and he was really exploding with energy. But will all this hard work ever pay off? There is only one way to find out. Before returning to the UK, Stafford goes to meet Salvador Allende. It's their first encounter and Stafford has only one shot to sell his grand vision. But will Allende get it? Will he buy it? Will he trust this British management consultant with fixing the socialism that he's been trying so hard to build? After all, it's meant to be a revolution of red wine and empanadas, not of whiskey and meat pies. And will Stafford get the biggest consulting project of his life? At first, the odds might look stacked against him. They come from two very different worlds. Allende, a socialist, Stafford, a management guru. But our business theorist does have something going for him. Stafford has a knack for finding connections between seemingly unrelated things, like brains and factories, or nervous systems and networks. So he can explain his vision even to those unfamiliar with the cybernetic jargon. For Yende, there is much to like about Stafford's proposed redesign of the government. It's inspired by our own bodies. Think about it. Most of what we do doesn't require conscious thought. We breathe, we digest, we heal, without even noticing. Imagine if the government could do the same. 
What if it could handle the routine stuff without forcing its brain to waste time and energy? Should that happen, the government might be able to focus on what really matters. Allende could certainly get on board with this vision. He's a doctor, after all, so Allende does understand stuff as analogous, those to the brain and the nervous system. And it sounds like the two are, in fact, hitting it off. Here is Stafford's own recollection of that meeting. The audio quality is not great, so apologies for that. By the way, when you hear Stafford say, when I got here, what he means by here is the very top level of Chilean politics, at least as it is postulated by his cybernetic model. When I got to here, and I was going to begin by saying, compañero presidente, but before I could say it, he leant back, he leant right back, and he said, ah, El Pueblo. Sent shivers down my spine and still does just repeat it, because that is a, a model which most people would think was a hierarchy. And he at once saw that because I, because it was a total system, the people empowerment here was what mattered. What Stafford is saying here is that Allende is fully aware that he is the system's brain in name only. The real power resides with the people, El Pueblo. Or at least, that's what Stafford really wants to believe about Allende. Back in the UK, Stafford is on top of the world. He's finally found a kindred spirit in the socialist president, and for better or worse, the futures are now intertwined. But this may not be such a great thing, not least because ITT is playing dirty again. Its executives are not taking their laws lying down. No, they're bringing their grievances straight to the top. They hatchet another plan, and they send it to Nixon's people. It's a memo listing 18 strategies to sabotage Allende. Strategies like this. Continue loan restrictions in the international banks. Quietly have large U.S. private banks do the same. Delay buying from Chile over the next six months. Bring about a scarcity of U.S. dollars in Chile. Discuss with the CIA how it can assist the six months squeeze. Yes, six months. That's all they give Allende. And they urge Washington to do whatever it can to crush him in the short period. Everything should be done quietly but effectively to ensure that Allende does not get through the crucial six months. And as if it wasn't enough, there is a new twist. A fake letter produced by the CIA that claims Allende is working with Cuban spies. A letter that could give the Chilean military the perfect excuse to overthrow him. Its timing couldn't be any worse, as it coincides with a much-awaited visit to Chile by a foreign dignitary. A foreign leader who can offer Allende some advice, and perhaps more than advice. Yes, you probably guessed it right. We are talking about that one-time lawyer turned revolutionary. Fidel Castro, the enigmatic Cuban leader, arrives in Chile with a stash of weapons. Some for Allende's security detail and some to be stowed away in the Cuban embassy, just in case a coup breaks out. Beatriz Allende is given an Uzi machine gun, while her father is presented with an AK-47. It's engraved with the words, To Salvador, from his comrade in arms, Fidel. This is no fleeting visit. It lasts nearly a month. Castro even rolls up his sleeves and works a shift at a copper mine, hoping to win the hearts and minds of the miners. But try as he might, he can't get them to work on Sundays and take a pay cut. They're all on board with the revolution of red wine and empanadas, but working extra time? For what? During a reception at the Cuban embassy, Castro cannot believe his eyes. Allende's supporters are all around him, glasses in hand, and ready to celebrate. But they seem oblivious to the right-wing protesters, the ones from Patria and Libertad, who are marching outside. Why not go out and confront them? Patria Libertad is now a formidable entity. It's not just some right-wing lawyers and entrepreneurs, it's also technical experts, even from abroad. In fact, one of them, an American mechanic called Mike Townley, has become the subject of interest for American diplomats, as one of them reports. He helped design the equipment which Patria Libertad used to monitor the private conversations of the president, the GAP, and the government parties. You're probably aware of the tapes of some of President Allende's conversations that Patria Libertad gave to Paul R. P-O-L-R, by the way, is a secretive section of the U.S. Embassy. 
and the gap I and his bodyguards initially drawn from Mir. But hold on, what tapes are they talking about? Well, it turns out that Patria and Libertad got their hands on equipment of a very particular kind. Equipment for intercepting calls that were made through radio phones. Phones that were then widely used by in this inner circle. As with the story of the box found inside La Moneda, it seems that Allende's opponents clearly know their way around the world of dark tech. They know it so much better than he does. And the utopian tech of Stafford Beer might not just be dark enough to defeat them. The protests that disrupt the reception at the Cuban embassy are led by middle and upper class women, and they are very much opposed to Allende. With pots and pans in hand, they flood the streets of Santiago in order to protest the food shortages. But for Peter Comblu, there is more to this demonstration that meets the eye. The truth is, is that this whole movement started with a payment from a CIA agent in Santiago to one woman of $350 uh, for her to start organizing Chilean middle-class women to protest uh, against Allende using these pots. The situation in Santiago is dire. As the angry women march in protest, there is quite a bit of violence breaking out between the two groups we know so well. There is Patria y Libertad, the tech geniuses of the right, and Mir, the tech geniuses of the left. Not surprisingly, Allende eventually declares a state of emergency to quell all this unrest. But beneath the chaos lies a more insidious plan, a plan to tear apart the bond between the middle and working classes that Allende has worked so hard to create. In their quest to bring him down, Allende's opponents are demonizing him as a threat to private property, and with it also to the livelihoods of the middle-class professionals in the private sector as a whole. Gabriel Rodriguez recalls those efforts. These enemies were very difficult to, to fight with because they were associations hmm, of citizens eh, that we don't agree with the kinds that they do, but we can oppose them. So that's where we are roughly 13 months after he assumes office. Allende's political fortunes are on the line as the middle classes, once definitely in his corner, begin to abandon him. Will he be able to win them back? Should he? Why not just radicalize the workers, his true supporters? The Santiago boys are trying to save Allende from a looming crisis. They think they have a secret weapon, the war room a place to track and respond to emerging problems. Fernando Flores brings it up early into Stafford's first visit to Chile. A big crisis is inevitable, and Allende needs it. Stafford agrees, and for good reason. He witnessed the German bombings of London during World War II, and it was rooms like this that allowed British commanders to master all those real-time threats. Yes, they partly won the war because of their superior information system. This might explain why Stafford always wanted to use such rooms in business, but no one there listened. Until now. In Chile, they do need such a room. Or maybe they need more than one. The Santiago boys want it all. Computers, telexes, displays, chairs. And they want it all for good reasons. A war is in fact brewing, even if the bombs are not yet falling from the sky. For Stafford, this room is more than just a functional tool. It represents something tangible that people can connect with. The responsibility for implementing his vision falls on Guy and his team. One day, um, Fernando Flores appeared in the office there in, 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 in tech, and he said, look, we, we need a, a meeting room equipment for a meeting room of about 10 persons um, with a slide projector and, uh, and some storage units to keep visual representation of diagrams and flowcharts. He's taken aback when his plan is met with a less than favorable reaction. But when uh, Stafford Pierce saw this, he was not pleased, you see? It was obviously he did not like this. As we already know, Stafford's vision can be bold and ambitious, and sometimes it can be a little bit hard to follow, especially in a country where information technology is not yet in every office. 
We can get photographs of the plant. We can get a brief account of the of the plan that has been made for investment. All that all that kind of information is available to get our discussion going. The data in this room must always be up to date. The only way to arrive at wise decisions. Why is it in a technological age we are stuck with information that's six, eight months out of date and causes the government to take exactly the wrong decision each time? We don't have to do that. Notice what's going on here. Beer and CyberSyn are abandoning the traditional toolkit of Soviet planning. Instead, they're charging towards a new type of socialism, one where real-time data triumphs of archaic planning methods. And that's how it should be. Reality is stronger than theory, as I ended once said. And CyberSyn could be the key to managing this complexity. No need to keep trying to fit it into a neat plan. But will the Santiago boys rise to the occasion? Will they get it up and running before it's too late? You may recall the cunning plan, Hatchet and Viña del Mar, that nice coastal town. A plan by the Chilean industrialists for a warum of their own. Or should this be a kurum? Well, their colony-led intelligence network is now 70-plus people strong. Every morning, they compile a list of Allende's emerging problems, and the militants of Patria y Libertad are ready to exploit them to the maximum. It's a situation rife with irony. Stafford is teaching the Santiago boys about the science of effective organization. That's how he defines cybernetics. Meanwhile, Allende's opponents are playing a different game altogether. They are perfecting the art of effective disorganization and anti-cybernetics, if you will. It's a battle of nerds, yes, but one side here is armed to the teeth and determined to play dirty, and it's not Stafford's. As you may have noticed, Allende's presidency is already besieged by enemies. But now another power player joins the fray, the military dictatorship of Brazil. According to the historian Tanya Harmer, Nixon loves it. In the 1970s, when Allende was um uh, elected, um, the United States um, instantly looked to Brazil's uh, military dictatorship as a potential alternative to what was happening in Chile. The reasons are not exactly a secret. The Nixon administration regarded Brazil's dictatorship as uh, particularly supportive of the United States' anti-communist kind of project within the hemisphere but also as a model of a stable uh, country um, that was experiencing at that moment um, uh, economic growth. A mere decade earlier, Brazil stood as a shining example in the region, a bastion of democracy and progress guided by a visionary leader. The story of its demise is a reminder that Allende's days too might be numbered. But how did such a model democracy fall apart in the first place? Does it hold lessons for today's Chile? And who was Brazil's Allende? President João Goulart, uh, his name is João Goulart, uh, but everyone calls him Jango, um, had been pushing for a set of reforms, expanding the vote to all Brazilian citizens in a way which was very similar to what was to the fight that was happening in the United States at the time. This is Vincent Bevins, a writer who's closely studied U.S. foreign policy during the Cold War. Many of Django's ideas sound like they come straight from Allende's own campaigns from the 1950s. There were literacy rules which excluded poor and black Brazilians from voting. He wanted land reform, and the middle and upper classes in Brazil and the military were very unhappy with him. Django wants to make Brazil a better place for everyone. He wants people to read and write, to have a sane government, and to stand up to foreign powers. But not everyone likes his ideas. So, the country's elites are already plotting with the army. They want Django out. They want him out so badly, they're spreading lies. They accuse him of being a communist who will ruin the country and deliver it to the Soviets or the Chinese. And they're trying to mobilize civil society journalists, religious leaders, against him. They're even getting upper-class women to march in the streets to show their disrespect for this leader. The Americans? Well, they aren't with Django, as Vincent Bavins points out. The United States has been telling the Brazilian military since the early 60s that if they need to carry out a coup, they should think about it and they fully have the backing of the United States. 
American businesses pressure Washington to pull aid and other support from Brazil. Behind the scenes, the CIA under John McCone is also quietly influencing the local trade unions. Aware of the power of dark tech, the CIA is keeping a very close eye on the unions in the telecommunications sector. Whose side would they take when the big day arrives? And arrive it does. In late March of 1964, the military takes over Brazil and removes Django from power. The CIA is happy. They have helped to stop another crypto-communist from ruining Latin America. And they have learned some valuable lessons in stoking a coup. Lessons that will come in handy in years to come, perhaps even in Chile. As expected, one tech guy does come to play an important role on the day of the coup. A trade union leader who uses his technical skills to serve a political agenda. Someone who's been to CIA-funded workshops for anti-communist labor leaders. Someone who keeps the phone lines open for the military to communicate, even when Django's supporters instruct him differently. This is dark tech in action. The hidden power of technology to shape politics and history. The power that is often ignored by the excessively naive leftists. But they ignore it at their own peril. Will Chile prove different? As predicted, this new military regime immediately receives the nod from the U.S. government. But, as Vincent Bevins tells us, soon things take a sinister turn. The coup took place with the broad support of the Brazilian elites. The Brazilian military did not have much trouble sidelining Django and taking power. And a lot of people, including Zhang himself thought that the, this regime wouldn't last very long, that there would be elections soon. This, of course, is not what happened. Instead, the military regime becomes radicalized, using violence and oppression. As a result, many of Brazil's finest thinkers flee to Chile. This radically transforms the country's intellectual and political landscape. And one Chilean politician sees an opportunity. He wants to learn from all this upheaval, and he wants to understand just how to avoid a coup, a future coup in Chile, a coup when he finally becomes president. When João Goulart is overthrown and, and goes to Montevideo, Senator Allende goes to Montevideo to visit him with AIDS. This is Roberto Simon, who's written a book on Brazilian interference in Chile. There are protests against the, the overthrow of, of the the Jungular government that, uh, you know, Allende supports in Chile. He speaks in Congress uh, in defense of, of Jungular and criticizing the new Brazilian dictatorship. But it turns out that Allende is not the only one learning lessons from Brazil. His enemies, too, want to learn from that coup. To organize a coup of their own, perhaps. Roberto Simon explains. The CNI, which is National Confederation of Industries in Brazil, uh, dispatch uh, a plane full of businessmen uh, to Chile in 1970, immediately after um, Allende's election, to talk about what had happened in Brazil in 1964, to show support and, and, and to show that the, the Chilean business community is radically opposing Allende was not alone and they were ready to, to mobilize other people in Latin America, the United States, and elsewhere. So we've got all these Brazilian leftists in Santiago, and they're wanting to help Allende. But we also have this right-wing, rich, and powerful Brazilians who are happy to help in overthrowing him. Guess which side is likely to prevail? But now that we've finished this brief crash course on Brazilian history, we can get back to our own story with Nixon thinking about how to pull another Brazil but in Chile. And it just so happens that just days after Fidel Castro finally leaves Santiago and flies to Havana, the Brazilian dictator Medici comes to Washington. Together with Nixon, they discuss how to get rid of Allende, both of them hoping that the Chilean military will intervene. And Brazil is happy to help however it can. And so is Nixon. He's telling Medici that whatever is needed, money, weapons, spies, all of that is available, and America will be happy to supply it. Nixon raises a strange toast to his guests from Brazil. 
The Brazil goes, he says, Latin America will follow. Nixon is more prophetic here than he knows. Brazil is, in fact, leading the way. But it's leading the way in something terrible. Torture, surveillance, repression. And they're getting help from Washington with sophisticated aid and police trainings. But it's not like Brazil just started doing this after the coup. No, they've been building up their spy networks for a very long time before that. And we're talking private spy networks here. Networks funded by rich businessmen. Networks that, after the coup, would form the backbone of the new regime's merciless secret police. So, does Latin America really need to follow where Brazil goes? As Nixon secures Brazil's backing and helping him to weaken Allende, he also turns up the heat on Santiago in other ways. One of Nixon's tactics is to cut economic aid. And it's quite a list of measures he's planning, as Peter Kornblu explains. The cutoff of loans from the World Bank, from the Inter-American Development Bank, from the import, uh, export-import um, bureaus of the United States government. government no, no credits from the United States went to Chile after Allende's election. Those were cut off. An invisible blockade, some call it. There are documents which show that the United States government, Kissinger's office, went to the Inter-American Development Bank and pressured high officials there uh, to simply say no to any Chile request for loans, uh, for loans to develop bridges, infrastructure, uh, uh, transportation, etc. Things that would hurt uh, Allende's ability to, to, to show that the Chile was making progress under his policies. It might take more than cybernetic software to keep this economy afloat. But other problems abound, too. For one, sabotage is a common occurrence now. This tactic is not new. The CIA used similar methods in Cuba of the early 1960s, targeting bridges, refineries, power plants, and sawmills, all of them with explosives. They called it the Operation Mongoose. Back then, some anti-Castro radio stations told their listeners to do two things. One, pick up any phone they could find and just leave it off the hook. And two, break as many beer bottles as possible. Why? Well, to mess with the communications and to create a shortage of glass. That is their way of fighting communism, dark tech style. A primitive cyber attack of sorts. Can you guess the name of the CIA director at the time? Well, yes, John McCone now a proud board member of ITT, the tech giant. Allende is up against people with incredible experience. Is Project Cybersyn even the right answer to something like Operation Mongoose? In a sense, it is. If the enemy's goal is to create chaos, beer cybernetic management can dampen its effects. He'll track everything and he'll keep it under control. Stafford's plans are so ambitious It's a wonder that he doesn't try to quantify the air that the Chileans breathe. We wanted to measure all sorts of different things. Production flow, thousands of tons of steel, uh, a few pounds of this, money flows in escudos, sometimes uh, 100 escudos, sometimes a million, uh, numbers of people, absenteeism, social factors. But one must admit, there is an admirable method behind this madness. Imagine a piece of software that can watch over the entire Chilean economy like a guardian angel. It can alert managers when something goes wrong and let them fix it. And it can keep the big bosses out of the loop unless things get really messy. It sounds simple. But then you hear Stafford delve into the subject with all the talk of algidonic mirrors and requisite variety. You start to wonder, will the workers understand all this cybernetic mambo-jumbo? The beauty is that they don't even have to learn any of it. They just have to chat to the visiting cybersyn engineers, explaining them what it is that they do every day and the problems they're facing. These conversations will lead them to produce the quantified flowchart. It's a way to visually represent what is actually going on in each plant, but in a way that bypasses the dense financial reports that, let's face it, no one likes to read. It's all about the big picture, as Stafford himself explains here. Now, I've thought for a very long time that it would be much better, instead of sitting around a table, 
armed with a load of paper and figures and so forth, if a management group could have a meaningful creative session armed with real information, by which I mean the kind of stuff that is readily accepted by the brain, which figures, let's face it, are not. What is accepted by the brain is color and movement and relative size. The quantified flowchart is like a map of the plant, with all the colors and arrows. It immediately shows the essentials, how much stuff is coming in, how much stuff is going out, where the shortages are, where the delays are, and so forth. It makes workers see their plant in a whole new way, and it makes them better managers. These charts are true eye candy, not least because it's Guy and his team who are tasked with designing them. Stafford is awfully proud of this whole thing. Some people have said to me, well, this is all very simple, everybody knows about flowcharts and so on. But they don't in the context of management itself. Then this kind of diagram is going to tell you one hell of a lot very fast, especially if it's moving and all of that. Quantified flowcharts may appear to be the magic bullet for Chile's problems, but they can't do it all. Take the mass surrounding ITT's nationalization. The government did take over the company, yes, but the workers are still unhappy. They want more money. And the quantified flowchart can't help with that. We have these telexes from ITT's former bosses. They're basically laughing at Allende's problems. And then there is Schatz. He's the new government's guy in charge. And he's trying to make it work despite a massive strike called by the workers. Here's what one of those ITT telexes tells us about the problems that Allende's new manager is facing in the newly nationalized company. In the early stages of the strike, Schatz organized persuasion teams, which were sent into the various plants to explain the company's delicate financial condition and why the workers should not strike. Schatz lost his cool while making a personal persuasion call on the long-distance operators, the most defiant of the strikers. One of the angrier operators told Schatz his remarks were proof that nothing had changed at Chiltelco under the new management, but the present bosses were very bit as intransigent as the old regime. Allende's revolution is running out of steam. The workers who once supported him are losing faith. The economy is in shambles. And his cybernetic dream is hanging by a thread. But there is a twist. A scandal is brewing in Washington. A scandal that could expose Nixon's role in sabotaging Allende. And the source of it all is one of Nixon's sworn enemies. Perhaps Allende's revolution, that utopia of wine and empanadas and milk for every child, still has a chance. In the next episode of The Santiago Boys, as ITT's anti-Allende activities finally come to light, Chile erupts in protest. Even the US Senate launches an investigation. But the bigger problems remain. After all, the Chilean economy still verges on the edge of collapse. Now, though, the Chilean armed forces are getting restless. There are even rumors of a violent coup. Will I end this cybernetic weapon be ready in time? And do the Santiago boys have what it takes to resist the pressure? This episode is brought to you by Reese's Peanut Butter Cups. In breaking news, leading scientists worldwide are conducting experiments to determine if Reese's Peanut Butter Cups are the perfect combination of peanut butter and chocolate. However, it appears the study was inconclusive, as the scientists couldn't help but eat all the Reese's. Because when you want something sweet, you can't do better than Reese's. Find Reese's now at a store near you. The Santiago Boys is a co-production of Cora Media and Post-Utopia. Writing, research, development, and presentation, Evgeny Marozov. Music main theme, Luca Michele. Audio editing and post-production, Mattia Licciotti. Music supervisor, Luca Michele. Post-production assistant, Filippo Mainardi. Post-production producer, Matteo Salsa. The people who've been helping me with organizing, recording, and processing hundreds of interviews, unfortunately too many to name here. But I'd like to extend special thanks to Chiara De Leone, Ekaitz Cancela, Nikolai Maximchuk, and Matteo Miavaldi. 
all of whom have helped me in more than one way. Full credits are also available on the podcast website, the-santiago-boys.com. <laughs>